You are listening to National Security Law Today. We're recording this on the 19th day of Putin's attack on Ukraine and the 24th month of the COVID-19 pandemic. We're learning quickly that power is vested in the country that controls the supply chain of things like energy. But if COVID has taught us nothing else, it's that we must bring production of essential items home to the United States in the interest of national security. April is Supply Chain Integrity Month. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Elisa, and my guest today is Jeanette McMillan, Assistant Director of Supply Chain and Cyber Directorate of the National Counterintelligence and Security Center. And Jeanette, that is, gosh, wow, thank you for coming in. You are exactly the right person we should have today. Thank you so much, Elisa. It is my honor to join you today. And as you stated, where we are in the world today, it is certainly important to appreciate uh, where we are with supply chains and on this critical part of supply chain security. So thank you so much. It's my pleasure. So I'd like to go back. It's been a year since the president issued Executive Order 14017, America's Supply Chains. There are now no fewer than six supply chain reports from the Departments of Defense, Homeland Security, Commerce, Energy, Agriculture, Transportation, and lastly, and most important to us, I guess, recently is Health and Human Services. So let's talk about what was the goal of these reports. Thank you, Elisa. Yes, uh, as you said it right up front, COVID-19 showed the world that dominating the supply yields tremendous power. We have had a front row seat to the flurry of activity surrounding supply chain security from software to semiconductors, pipelines to peanut butter. Global supply chains are large and lucrative attack vectors, and our adversaries know it. From a counterintelligence and security perspective, where we sit at NCSC, we have you know, fortified physical security through traditional guards, gates, and guns, provide protection for our crown jewels. And certainly, after the Snowden incident, we have also taken a look at the insider threat programs, and they were enhanced to effectively identify those in trusted positions that should not be. And increases to investment security were realized with the changes to CFIUS through FIRMA legislation. So where would our adversaries turn to to regain the ground they lost? The supply chains. And this administration took that head on as one of its first executive orders coming out of February of 2021. And more importantly, they looked at one of the most critical supply chains, the ICT supply chain, or as we call it in my, in my world, the cyber supply chain. So the goal of the EO 14017 was to determine the risk to the United States in these six critical supply chain areas. The six sector reports identified threats, vulnerabilities, and consequences across the board. And hats off to the departments and agencies that really took the time to study these issues from soup to nuts. Um, it wasn't a one-year report that they could have done in, in one year. I'm sure they could have kept going, but the president was like, we need this now. And clearly, some of the things that we're witnessing with regards to some of the continued supply chain disruptions and supply chain shocks that we've all witnessed are certainly needing to understand these risks and vulnerabilities, but more importantly, being able to put some of the recommendations in place. For example, in the energy report, DOE reported that there was about 75% of the silicone solar cells, which were essential to solar energy. These were made by Chinese subsidiaries located in just three Southeast Asian countries, Vietnam, Malaysia, and Thailand. 
Further, DOE stated that unfortunately, the US has no operating capacity for making those solar cells. From transportation, we had to go from a just-in-time to a just-in-case model. But when you have a, a particular transportation node like a canal that's stuck with a big freighter for several days, your transportation, your ports, everything else gets completely compromised and that disruption is felt across the globe. For agriculture and food department, the Department of Agriculture dug deep and looked at every phase of the food supply chain from farm to fork, including food production, processing, distribution, and consumption. But in that abundant supply for feeding our country, even a temporary disruption in food supply chain, something that we saw last summer, can affect every American household due to the need for daily food consumption. Our HHS department definitely took a really good understanding of what was really holding back our public health and our public health nodes for supply chains in terms of being able to have resilient PPE for all of our front workers who were there in the health sector, but also making sure that the supply chains for critical vaccines that we're now able to have are certainly something that we definitely needed to understand where those risks and vulnerabilities were. We needed to also focus on low costs, reducing diversity across the supply chain, workforce shortages, and financial barriers to entry and expansion, and also the lack of visibility and coordination across the PPE supply chain. The DIB, Defense Industrial Base, something that's close and near and dear to me, had similar reliance on single source and foreign sources that presented a risk to the defense industrial base. And that defense industrial base supports the IC and defense missions across the board. For example, China's metal casting production is four times that of the United States, which is cited by the armed forces as a critical vulnerability. Similarly, vehicle electrification, for example, for advanced batteries, dramatically was introduced by 2030, but China currently dominates the global advanced battery supply chain, producing 94% of the batteries that is needed for the critical market area for advanced vehicles. Certainly, last but not least, again, cyber supply chain, the information communications technology services supply chain was reviewed by both departments of commerce and Department of Homeland Security. And they assess that the supply chains of critical sectors and subsectors of that industry are based from hospitals to small businesses, all facets of the economy are dependent on ICT devices to operate. For example, in 2018, it was estimated that 84% of US households owned a smartphone and 78% owned a desktop or a laptop computer. That just demonstrates that we are inundated with this particular supply chain and that supply chain above all others cuts across all these sectors. So really great work from departments and agencies, but now it's time to get to the implementation. How do we better protect these supply chains now that we have this wonderful risk and vulnerability information? Yeah, I think we're all wondering about that. We, I, you know, frankly, this war in Ukraine, as much as the pandemic, I think has raised the consciousness of Americans. I think they're going to begin to hold corporations more accountable for this. But it is alarming when you hear words like there is no capacity to do this. And as you may know, we just completed a series on critical minerals. And we did so by using an example of one source of critical minerals, which is the seabed. And the levels yes. of complication just go on and on and on. And I think it's time we all take that seriously and be willing to make some sacrifices. But let's focus for a minute on we're a national security law broadcast. And of course, listening to you, all of this sounds national security relevant to me. Um, but let's focus on a few things. We've talked about critical minerals and oil to microchips. 
What are you seeing in terms of supply chain issues that directly impact national security and should be an immediate priority? Yeah, thank you again for that. I think we have to look at the the cyber impacts. For example, as I believe it was the ATA hearing just last week, where the DNI said, look, we have critical infrastructure being disrupted and that our nation state actors, mainly China and Russia, are using the cyber attack vector as one of those areas to make sure that they can disrupt not only oil and gas, but railway systems, SCADA system, industrial based systems that support all nodes of critical infrastructure within our organization. And so those were things that the Director of National Intelligence testified to Congress just last week. And the cyber supply chain is built on software. And so we have been really inundated with trying to make sure that that software supply chain that cuts across the board is something that we can fortify, not only for those individual supply chains, but for the software supply chain itself. For example, like I said, again, NCSC approaches these issues from a CI and security perspective. To borrow a term from my information security stakeholders, we are always looking for the CIA, Um, not the one I'm used to in the IC or the one I grew up in, (laughs) but CIA in terms of the supply chain having confidentiality, integrity, and availability. While each of the sector-specific reports that I've mentioned from our other federal agencies have identified risks in these areas, from a national security perspective, we have seen the ICT supply chain be used to target all of these other sectors. For example, back in 2017, five years ago, the transportation giant Maersk was severely crippled by what? A cyber attack. Software supply chain, not Petya. It was dispersed through an infected upgrade to Mimidocs, a widely used taxware package. And in NotPetya, it rapidly spread to more than 60 countries in Europe and the U.S. and beyond. In the energy sector, 2021, the FBI confirmed that dark side ransomware was responsible for the compromise of the colonial pipeline networks. The breach is the largest targeted crucial supply chain and comes three weeks after what? Colonial pipeline attack on the fuel operations in the U.S. From our food distributions, again, on June 21st, the White House announced the meat production in North America was disrupted by a ransomware attack against JBS Meat Corporation, one of the world's largest meat suppliers. And that forced a three-day closure, which was 25% of beef and 20% of pork capacity nationally. At that time, the White House stated that it was engaging directly with the Russian government on this matter, delivering the message that responsible states do not harbor ransomware criminals. We know that the group Our Evil was behind this attack, but again, were they allowed to act with complete impunity after it? HHS reported several different things with regards to COVID-19 ransomware and cyberware attacks that were part of phishing scams, posing risk to PPE supplies, vaccine integrity, and other hospital supply chain threats. DOD Deputy Defense Secretary Hicks stated that the DIB cybersecurity is and will remain an expanding priority for the U.S. Department of Defense. More than 220,000 companies provide value to the department's force development, and the DIB is now facing increasingly sophisticated and well-resourced cyber attacks that must be stopped. The cyber attacks that threaten the U.S. and the rules-based order on which global economies rely, continued Deputy Director Hicks, Markets cannot function effectively in an environment where adversarial countries are leveraging their national power to steal intellectual property, to sabotage commercial activity, and to threaten supply chains. So ICTS, again, is one of the most 
critical supply chains that I think we have been focusing on for quite some time. Because of the tech vector that has been increased as we went home from COVID, everyone got onto essentially Zoom calls and other platforms to work and collaborate and continue to do the good work of not only the nation, but just industries that are supporting um, the national security and also federal other industries that are there to make sure that we were able to continue those missions. That's why we think it's gonna be one of the most critical supply chains to secure. Securing that supply chain is going to be one of the key elements, making sure the other supply chain risk and vulnerabilities are taken care of. Okay. So, you know, everything becomes political at the end of the day. And by that, I don't mean partisan politics, but I'm referring to the separation of powers. And I think executive orders and reports are excellent tools. And sometimes they can break through a divide and they can be helpful. They can also be helpful to begin the process of educating the American public on issues that they may not otherwise be aware. Um, But at the end of the day, Congress holds the purse strings, they make the laws. And so let's talk for a minute about the tools that might be available to the legislative branch right now to address supply chain. What do they have in their pocket of tools right now? What can they act on immediately to provide some relief in this area? And thank you for that. Elisa, as you know, as a recovering attorney, I am. Um, I know the value of having a strong statutory foundation for taking swift and decisive actions. And that's exactly what's needed here, especially if we're going to protect against supply chain threats. And as you were mentioning on the semiconductors, one of the major recommendations from one of the reports for the DIB is to make sure that the CHIPS Act is fully funded. And that's definitely on Congress's to-do list. I'm not exactly sure where it is on the to-do list, but it's definitely there. Also, So just last week, I understand that both the House and Senate now have bills to compare and and to go into conference. The Senate had passed the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act, and the House has passed the America Competes Act. And they both have very compelling provisions that would make substantial impacts to secure our nation's technology future through supply chain issues. It will be very interesting to see what uh, House and Senate lawmakers do in the next coming weeks to develop a, quote, Goldilocks kind of solution to bring forward the best of these provisions that each one of the bills have. But while we're just waiting on that, we can certainly look to some of the things that Congress has done in the recent past with regards to the implementation of the Secure Technology Act. And one of those things that they did was they required every department and agency to develop its own supply chain risk management program. So if you're buying these things, if you're looking for semiconductors, if you're looking for chips, if you're looking for things that are gonna be in your information and communications technology from a federal department standpoint, you have to make sure that you're going to do a supply chain risk management review. What does that do? It essentially allows each department and agency to understand where those things are being resourced from. If where it's being resourced from is too much of a high risk for putting it into their network, into their environment, they're able to say that this is not going to work for us and we can exclude that vendor or if they're already in the network, remove that vendor. So the Secure Technology Act empowered each one of the executive agencies to make that decision and make those determinations for their department or agency. Another key aspect of the Secure Technology Act was the development of the Federal Acquisition Security Council. And that's a body of council members from across the federal government that look at supply chain risks from a national level standpoint. And so that these council members can prioritize the criteria that they would be used to acquire goods and services and make sure that our global supply chain and the supply chain risks that we are facing are not 
absolutely introduced without having that risk management decision process go forward. And essentially, we are looking at all executive branch agencies to develop their own program, but they're going to review the potential risk to federal networks. And more importantly, if we're saying no to one organization or one vendor, who can we say yes to? Are we developing those alternative sources of supply that are onshored or nearshored to ensure that we have best integrity, confidentiality, and availability in those particular areas? Again, Secure Technology Act is not perfect, but what it makes sure that we're doing for the first time from a federal standpoint is baking in supply chain security. And that's definitely something that we wanna do going forward. And these proactive scrim measures are complementary to some of the other cybersecurity efforts that we've seen in recent weeks. For example, the development of the SBOMs, the Software Bill of Materials, as well as defining what we really mean by critical software, and also pushing into contract language when cyber incidents occur. Are there breach notifications? And do vendors for departments and agencies have the responsibility to make those breach notifications when and how quickly and what can they do to remedy those things going forward? So again, while it would be awesome to have, you know, cyber response and incident is great. I don't want to work to be awesome at cyber response. I want to work to be awesome of not having an incident at all. So um, that would be the goal that we're trying to do as we look forward to not only using the current supply chain risk management authorities that we have, but helping to make sure that Congress can pass some of these additional laws like the CHIP Act, the Competes Act, et cetera, to complement the things that we have on the books right now. Yeah, I mean, it it seems just basic that you should be required to make breach notification, engage in mitigation, that that should be timely, yes. uh, particularly if you, you have a contract with the august United States government. So I fully agree. This sounds uh, exceedingly important. Now, I do want to shift the conversation because... Sometimes I think this kind of stuff is is very upsetting. It's alarming. We're, uh, you know, frankly, we're watching a war unfold on television right now. But there are very happy, positive things happening in the world. And one of the positive things I want to talk about here is it's the important role that women and African-Americans play in our national security apparatus and why it is so important to continue to recruit people of color into national security roles. Now, For our listeners who don't know, you're an African-American woman who has had, frankly, an incredible career in national security law. Quite frankly, you describe you sort of burst into the intelligence community. I grew up in the intelligence community. I'm so happy to see you. And I've one of the benefits that I had growing up as a child living around the world was wherever we were, whatever anybody looked like, we were always Americans. It was us against the world. We felt this. it, It just didn't matter. Things broke down. And that happens in the IC too, but I wanted you to talk about how you got started, what drew you to national security law. And I want you to give some advice to young lawyers and law students who are looking at what's happening in the world today, particularly from countries that do have a somewhat racist agenda. They do have a history and they may want to serve. They may say, you know what, this is my America. I need to get involved. What advice do you have for them? Yeah. Well, oh, thank you so much for uh, for that, Elisa. Excellent shift. Like I said, I'm a recovering attorney, but um, a legal mind is a is a terrible thing to waste. So I'm still working with it and still doing it. I certainly had a wonderful opportunity to start as one of the very first parts of my career. I served as an honors attorney. 
at the Central Intelligence Agency's Office of General Counsel, right out of law school. So I was a brand new uh, recruit there coming in from the Midwest and certainly wanted to make sure that I could serve. And I think that's one of the most important things that we could do to encourage people of all walks. Uh, It takes everyone to make sure that they want to come and be part of this America. And if folks that wanted to serve, it was an absolute opportunity for me to do so and and not to date myself, But uh, I got into the community just before 9-11. And after 9-11, I absolutely stayed. And I said, this is our country. This is just as much as anyone else. We have a right to be here and a right to 100% defend it. So 9-11 was very ingrained in what what I thought I would do in terms of my mission space and was able to serve. But it was also very telling as that happened several factors happen. I have been in boardrooms and been in in meeting rooms and at conferences where I was the only woman and and probably the only minority for a lot of those sessions. But that has changed significantly since I've been in the community. And I think for the most part, why that has happened is because of people being in the community and making sure that folks who wanted to serve were judged not by their color, but by the conduct of their service. And so being able to say, yes, my service may not look like yours. It may not have a, you know, crystal, you know, ball background with a wonderful James Bond coat over it, or it may not have a military background. But I believe that it is something that when someone sees that level of service, that level of commitment and dedication, you want to own that and you want to craft it. I was also very, very fortunate to have mentors that encouraged me to develop me as well as advocates. And advocates are very different. Advocates are the ones that promote you even when you're not there. But again, they're the ones that also notice your service, not ignoring your color, but focusing on my conduct, my actions, and especially when something did not go my way. We've all had those days where things are just not going your way. But um, now it is my honor to serve and return that goodwill to the IC. And it is certainly a community, I would think. And I had the honor and pleasure of being promoted to the senior service by DNI Clapper. And he said, your job right now, the only thing you need to do is create other seniors. And, and that's got to be my highest priority to make sure that I'm creating those other seniors and making sure that I'm giving back to the community and building that culture of inclusion on a foundation of service. That's a pretty good start, but I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet. And to quote my mom, who's the ultimate role model for me, I have to do my good, my better and my best. I never let them rest until my good is better than my best. So that's an opportunity for me to make sure that I'm bringing those other folks back into the community and doing the reach out that I can. And this is a wonderful opportunity to do so. So I can't thank you enough for recognizing that, especially for Women's Month, right? <laughs> yes, no, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you here. And, and, you know, I am looking, I do watch a lot of BBC and other foreign news right now. And one of the things I found so interesting was the number of stories that says one of the things that Putin doesn't really like about us is our embrace of diversity. Right. Right. Okay. If you're sitting on the sidelines, if you're on the fence right now and you're trying to figure out, should I really take the plunge? Should I try this? And you're a person of color. Heck yeah. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Right now is as good a time as any. Jump in, be here. Well, I am so glad that you came in today and your mom sounds great, by the way. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Really? Congratulations. I, I, I love any mom that finds the best in everybody, encourages them to better even their best. That's um, right. And she did so in such a positive way. 
So I hope we're going to get a chance to talk again in the future. And, and I have Absolutely. a sense that we will. It's been Absolutely. so great to have you here. And I want to thank our listeners again for tuning into National Security Law today. I want you to know that this is an introduction. We've got a terrific overview from Jeanette. We're also going to plunge into some of the specifics here related to semiconductors, the energy sector, And we're probably going to talk quite a bit more about shipping. You may have heard Jeanette reference Maersk, which is one of the largest shipping companies in the world. It's, I believe, a Dutch company, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. But you can go into any major port and you will see those huge container shipments there. They're responsible for so much. So that's very important to think about. And we'll hyperlink an article about what happened to them as well. So we never take your attention for granted. And we're going to be back next week with more serious content. We will take you through the month of April on supply chain. I want you to share this episode with a friend, if you would discuss it over coffee, subscribe to NSLT, and please send us comments and feedback on Twitter. You can find us at ABA NATSEC or by email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. And remember, the Standing Committee on Law and National Security will do whatever it can to keep you informed and give you context on all these fast-moving developments. And remember, the lawyers hosting this podcast at this point, it's me, are here in their individual capacity. I'm not here on behalf of any agency or firm. Be well, everyone, and be safe. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.